You're listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com. Well, good morning. My name is Dave Newton. I know a lot of you. Uh, if you don't know me, I've known Rick Soto 30 years before he even married Jane and uh, was on the board at Calvary in Santa Barbara. We hired him as our associate pastor back in the late 90s. And also as we uh, kicked him out of the nest in 2007 to come and launch a church. And it's been great to see all the Lord's done here in 14 years. Um, the notes for this morning are on the um, website. You can go to Newton, N-E-W-T-O-N. And my uh, uh, teachings are under Figure It Out, F-I-O. So newtonfio.com. And my webmaster put a little button in there. It says Ranch Church, December 19th. Click that and you'll have the notes you can follow along as if we had a slides on a screen. It's even nicer to have it right on your lap. This morning, we're going to take a look at the prophetic and practical precision to the birth of Jesus. Okay, the practical precision and the prophetic precision of the birth of Jesus Christ. How many of you have seen the current uh, magazine, Life magazine, out at the checkout stands? It's got a picture of an artist's rendition of Jesus, but amazingly, underneath the picture, it says, so who do you say that I am? And I think that's amazing this time of year to have that out in the uh, newsstands. As we begin, we think about Mashiach in the uh, Hebrew. Simply means anointed one. And there are six key scriptures that really point to the prophecy. I mean, there's many others, but the ones I like, Genesis 3, if you're looking, following along, the seed of the woman begins there that, uh, in, in the uh, garden where the uh, curse is pronounced, and it talks about the seed of the woman. Speaking of the virgin birth, Isaiah chapter 7 says, The Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a child. Call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel is with or alongside of. El is God, God with us. Isaiah 9, Unto us a child is born, a son is given. Micah 5, Messiah is from ancient times, he'll be born in Bethlehem. Hosea 11, But out of Egypt will I call my son. And then, of course, in Judges, the child shall be a Nazarite unto God, and many, many others. But the precision of his birth is pretty amazing. Now, it shows here the uh, prophetic foreshadows that we have in the Scriptures. Romans 15 says, In earlier times, everything was written in the Old Testament for our instruction today. Colossians chapter 2 talks about a shadow of things to come, or a foreshadow is everything in the Old Testament was foreshadowing Christ who was to come. First Peter tells us that uh, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry trying to ascertain about the Christ who would come, things into which angels long to look. Matthew 5, Jesus himself said, Nothing in the word will pass away until everything in God's word is accomplished in the scriptures. And in Luke chapter 24, Jesus was on the road to Emmaus, and he explained to those who he was walking with all the things that the Old Testament had to say about himself that he must come and die on the cross. So we think about Christmas. Even the word Christmas, think about it. It's an old English term, Christus Masse, um, from about the 15th century English language. And the Christos essentially means the body or the mass, Christ's body. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's Mashiach for the anointed one. Uh, the Greek is Christos. In English, we say Christ. And so it's the anointed body. He's come in the anointed body. Galatians chapter 4 tells us it was the fullness of time that God sent his son, made of a woman. 
And Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that in the fullness of time, God gathered all things into one, everything into Christ, into the anointed one. Now, amazingly, though, sad to say, our Christmas coming up next Saturday is basically something that's been merged by the Roman Empire in the 4th century with their winter solstice celebration, the Feast of Saturnalia, December 25th, as they would have the darkest days of the year, lighting all these candles all throughout the Roman Empire as a way to usher in the solstice. And so that Feast of Saturnalia was chosen as a way to merge Christianity with pagan Roman religion. And to this day, here we are, you know, 2,000 years later, we still celebrate on the 25th of December. A lot of people ask, how did we get our Christmas with all the red bows? Look at you guys all Christmas here with the snowflakes and mittens, hats, holly, chestnuts roasting, spiced cider, punch, Christmas pudding. God bless us, everyone. Uh, Eggnog, angels, uh, trees, wreaths, holly. Uh, Anybody had a chance to see the movie a couple years ago, The Man Who Invented Christmas? It's the story of Charles Dickens. Now he wrote his ghost story for Christmas Eve that ultimately became uh, Scrooge and uh, the Christmas Carol. And so much of our Christmas is based on an 1890s model from Victorian England, and that's become Christmas. Uh, Snow and sleigh rides and things like that. But here's the prophetic precision. People always ask, you know, so when was Jesus born? I mean, if, if we're celebrating on the 25th, when exactly was he born? And many of the answers that are out there in the world today are, well, no one can really know. If you go online, many theologians place it between 6 BC and 4 BC, Many historians say uh, 7 BC to 1 AD. Uh, Many will even say, well, there's not even a historical Jesus. Don't worry about it. It's kind of just, it's a fun thing. It's just a little fun season. Santa, Frosty, Rudolph, Jesus. You know, it's all just a fun thing. And some just say, who cares? It's just not important. But you know what? There's amazing precision in the scriptures. and That's what I'm here this morning to encourage you with. As believers, we're going to say it is important. It demonstrates the truth of the scriptures. It verifies God's prophecy about Messiah. If so much of the Bible prophecy regarding Jesus is all literally fulfilled, would not the events and timing of his birth be equally distinctive? Wouldn't you agree? How many of you remember the movie Back to the Future? Okay, if you're following along, you'll see uh, Dr. Emmett Brown was paid by Christopher Lloyd. And as they opened up the lid to the DeLorean, he's explaining it to Marty McFly, and he says, Marty! Let's say you want to go back and see the birth of Christ. And he dials it to what? December 25th, zero. And everybody laughs, of course, and stuff. But you know what? A Pew, a Pew Foundation poll in 2012 interviewed 1,700 college university students around the country and asked when Jesus was born. 75% of them said December 25th in the year zero. Think about that. We laugh. You know, there's really only one window of time when Jesus could be born. I've been doing a talk on this for about 30 years, and a year ago, we put it out in book form. We brought those here this morning for you, super discounted for the ranch Rick Soto discount price, and uh, so just $10, but uh, if you have some interest in a good read during Christmas, The Birth of Jesus on Yom Teruah, which is the Feast of Blowing Trumpets, the first of Tishri. And as we think about Jesus' birth, there's really only three key points in the scripture that help triangulate the best window for his birth. Now, when I grew up in a Presbyterian church in New Jersey, I remember hearing the story read, and there would be things like, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus in the time of Herod the Great, while Quirinius was governor of Syria. We've all heard that, right? Over and over and over. And you say to yourself, why did they write that down? Well, here's an interesting thing. There's only one window of time where Caesar Augustus is the emperor of Rome, Publius Sulpicius Quirinius is the governor of the Syrian province, 
and Herod the Great is still alive as the king of Judea. It's the window between 4 BC and 1 BC. It's the only time. Let's look at the first clue. Caesar Augustus ruled from 27 BC to 14 AD. He was Rome's first emperor. He was given the name Divi Filius Augustus in the Latin, the divine son of August. He was a god. He was recognized as a god. And in Luke 2, we hear a decree went out from the god, Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be taxed. A second clue, Quirinius, Publius Sulpicius Quirinius is well documented in Roman history. He lived from 53, to 20, 53 BC to 21 AD. He was the legate governor of Syrian province from 4 BC to 12 AD. And we told in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, uh, the census took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And of course, Herod the Great, he was an Edomite. He wasn't a Jew. He uh, was uh, defeated the Hasmoneans uh, and defeated Antigonus in 37 BC. He put in a special request to the Roman Senate and paid a lot of money to get the title King of the Jews. So a non-Jew, an Edomite, an Idumean, was given this title by the Roman Senate. And we're told by Flavius Josephus that Herod died after a lunar eclipse that was visible in Judea. The closest one we see is January 10th of 1 BC in our solar and uh, eclipse um, records. And he died after the eclipse, but before Passover. And that would have been in 1 BC. And in Luke chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2, we're told, in the days of Herod, the king of the Jews. So we've got Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, and Herod. And if you're following along in the slides, you'll see there's only one window where they all overlap, and it's between 4 BC and 1 BC. So that kind of narrows it down. We have another clue in the scriptures. Why in the world is there this long story about Zacharias serving in the temple and his wife Elizabeth getting pregnant after he hears from this angel? Well, Back in Leviticus, we're told that there are 24 cycles of men who will serve in the temple. And they're called the different courses of service. And they're all listed there in Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 24. If you want to have some really boring reading sometime, you can read through Jehoiarib, Jedidiah, Hiram, etc. You see these 24 courses. But we're told in the Gospels that he was serving at the, he was from the, a cycle of Abijah, which is the eighth course. Why did we need to know that he was from the eighth course of Abijah? It's interesting that uh, Flavius Josephus also tells us at the time the Jerusalem temple was destroyed by Titus Vespasian in 70 AD, at that time they had just started the first cycle again of Jehoiarib. That means you can actually go through on the calendar, and men have done this, I haven't, but men have done this, and they have gone back through and, and, and gone backwards looking for what's the closest to that 4 BC to 1 BC window where a guy like Zacharias would have been serving in the temple on the eighth course of Abijah. And if you go back, the closest would be July 13th of 3 BC. It's right there on your slide. So think about that. That fits right in the 4 BC to 1 BC. And here's what we know, a fifth clue. Mary and Elizabeth get together. And if Zacharias was told, let's say, in July of 3 BC that Elizabeth is going to bear a son, you're going to name him John, Mary then goes and visits her cousin who's six months pregnant. She's just heard from Gabriel that she's going to give birth to the Savior. She goes and sees him, and we're told in Luke chapter 1 it was Elizabeth's sixth month. That would be then, if, if, if this had happened in July of 3 BC, this would now be January of the following year, 2 BC. When, Ameri when Elizabeth walks in and and uh, sees her cousin Mary, and Mary greets her. We're told that the baby leaps inside her womb and is filled with the Holy Spirit in utero. 
Think about that. And uh, if you count out 40 weeks, typical pregnancy, John the Baptist would have then been born April 19th of 2 BC, which, by the way, just happens to be the start of Passover that year. Interesting. Jesus would then be born six months later, because Elizabeth was six months pregnant when she met Mary. And six months after April would be late September of 2 BC. Interestingly, that's the time when the month Tishri comes up in the Jewish calendar, the first month of the religious calendar. And the first day of Tishri, Rosh Hashanah, is also called Yom Teruah, beginning of the new year. And Yom Teruah means a day of blowing trumpets. I'm starting to get excited already. Jesus born on the day of blowing trumpets? Sure beats December 25th in the year zero. A sixth clue. How many of you like reading through Daniel chapter 9 and the prophecy about Messiah who would come, right? The seven sevens and 62 sevens. As that has been handled so well by Sir Robert Anderson, who was the uh, former Scotland Yard investigator who worked with the uh, Astronomer Royal at the Greenwich Observatory outside of London. The book, you can see it online, it's for free. It's a PDF called The Coming Prince by Sir Robert Anderson. Walks you through the exact calculation of Daniel's prophecy from Daniel chapter 9 about Messiah coming after there is a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That decree happened when Artaxerxes Longimanus said to Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 1, I'll give you letters. You can go and rebuild the city. And if you calculate that out as Anderson did, it comes out to April 6th of 32 AD. That's when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a colt, the foal of a donkey, and was hailed as Messiah. And the religious leaders said, Jesus, tell all these people to stop speaking out. Psalm 118, the Messianic Psalm, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus said, you know what? If I tell these to be silent, what's going to happen? The rocks are going to start to sing out. There was the one day to fulfill prophecy from Daniel when Jesus would be revealed as Messiah. Pretty amazing. Now think about it. If he comes in April of 32 AD and he's born in September of 2 BC, he'd be 32 and a half years old when he was coming into Jerusalem right before Passover when he's crucified. So it fits that same precision. Clue number seven. How about the Bethlehem shepherds? Know any shepherds up here? Okay. Ranchers, maybe? You know, if you go to holidayweather.com, accuweather.com, and weatherspark.com, and you look up December 25th, what's the weather like in Bethlehem? The high temperature in uh, December is maybe 50 to 55 degrees, and overnight it can be 30. That is not a time where you're out in the fields with your flocks. But you know what? If you look at the average late September, late summer, beginning of fall, Temperatures are between 72 and 65, 80 and 62, 76 and 65 degrees. Can you picture the shepherds not bringing their flocks in every night, but just staying out in the fields with them, letting them graze? All the sheep, the goats, oxen, and so forth. So the Bethlehem shepherds are outside in the fields. This is not December 25th. This is not, there's not a sleigh ride going by with uh, jingle bells. Uh, There's not chestnuts roasting on the open fire. Okay, this is uh, a balmy, beautiful beautiful fall evening. An eighth clue. These magi come, and the magi are a remnant from when Daniel was in Babylon. In fact, Daniel's title in Daniel chapter 4, verse 9, and Daniel chapter 5, verse 11, Nebuchadnezzar ultimately gave him the title Mag-Rab, chief of the magi. And the magi were about 700 years 
going all the way from Babylon through to the Medo-Persian Empire, all the way through to the Persian Parthian Empire. These were then the, the senior, senior religious priests of the entire kingdom, and their job was to handle coronation of kings all throughout the Medo-Persian Parthian, Par- Persian Parthian Empire. They probably had access to Daniel's records from several hundred years ago, and were looking at this prophecy about a, a person called Mashiach Nagid, Messiah the King. And they said they saw his star, they were doing some analysis, and they said, you know what, we're going to go and see this king. And so they remember, if you remember, Daniel ended up in the lion's den because these same magi were pretty upset that a Jewish refugee from Israel had been elevated to the position of Rab Maj, the chief of the Magi. And remember they had that whole issue of bowing down to a certain statue. If you don't do that, then you're going to end up in the lion's den. That's, that, that's the predecessor of that story. So these Persian Parthian Magi were told in the scriptures that they don't come at the birth night with the shepherds. Uh, we have a joke in Santa Barbara. I've been teaching on this for 30 years. Uh, every other year I do a special evening with this. And um, I've had people actually over the years bring me their three wise men from their tabletop nativity scenes to recognize. They say, I want to be biblically accurate, so I don't want my magi at the uh, stable when uh, Jesus is born. And uh, we have kind of a joke. I have a box with about 40 magi in there. And, um, and because they weren't at the birth night, we're told in the scriptures, it was after Jesus was born, magi from the east came. And the other thing you have to remember, when they came, we're, we have Hallmark specials, we have some goofy business, you know, Christmas cards, other things like that that have three guys on three camels with three gifts. They've even named them over the, over, the, over the centuries. One was from China, Asia, one was from Europe, one was from Africa, one was black, one was oriental, one was European, and so forth. I mean, all kinds of things have come down, but that's not biblical. In fact, when the Magi left, it's a 700-mile journey from their capital in Susa, to come out of Mesopotamia, at the top of the Tigris and Euphrates River, and come all the way into Jerusalem. You have to understand your history. At that time, the Roman Empire ended with the Syrian province. Then there was a demilitarized zone for about 500 miles till you came into the Tigris and Euphrates River Valley of Mesopotamia in the Persian Parthian Kingdom. And that DMZ was not to be ever broached in any way. So when you have a caravan coming 700 miles, it's not three guys on three camels, it's probably a five to 600 person caravan, including a military cavalry escort. Picture them with their turbans, long lances, flags flying, spears, swords, riding on majestic horses, camels, donkeys, bringing all the food, the tents, everything. About 10 miles outside of Jerusalem, some scouts would have seen this massive caravan coming with a cavalry escort through the demilitarized zone, to the edge of the Roman Empire. Do you understand now why they say in the scriptures, both in Matthew and in Luke, that when the Magi arrived, everybody in Jerusalem was greatly troubled? Okay? And I put on the screen in there, in your notes, a look at a a caravan to give you kind of an idea what this would look like. And when they arrive into the city, it must have been just pure majesty. I'm a big fan of Ridley Scott's film, The Kingdom of Heaven, there's a couple of scenes in there, some really majestic processions of these, these armed cavalry and soldiers and so forth. And that's how the Bible presents them coming into Jerusalem. And um, they immediately get an audience with Herod. How did Herod get his title? Do you remember? He got it from the Roman Senate by purchasing it, and he's not even Jewish. 
And what do they do when they see him? They come in and they say, hi, we're here to see the newborn king of the Jews. Where is he? And it says, Herod was troubled in his heart at these words. I think so. He understands he's not the king of the Jews. He calls his uh, Sanhedrin and he says, where's Messiah supposed to be born? And they quote Micah chapter 5 verse 2 in Bethlehem of Ephrathah, the city of David, going back to Boaz and Ruth. And so they ultimately go up to Bethlehem about several miles away. And we know the difference here is because the shepherds come in and they see what's called a briefos in the Greek. That's a newborn infant in the Greek. When the magi arrive, they see a paideon in the Greek, which is about a seven, eight, nine-month pre-toddler. So they didn't go at the same time. And they also go into the house. Interestingly enough, the three gifts they bring are gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold is prophetic about him being a king, frankincense about him being a priest, and myrrh is an embalming spice for prophecy about his death. I love this, though. In Isaiah chapter 60, when Jesus comes at his second coming, Isaiah says he comes and he brings gold and he brings frankincense and nothing else. Because what? The death and resurrection at Calvary has already taken place. No myrrh. To Telestai, it is finished. We're also told in Numbers chapter 4, verse 3, that the appropriate age for a Jewish man to go into full-time service and ministry is age 30. And interestingly enough, Luke chapter 3, 23 tells us that Jesus was 30 years old when he began his ministry. Can you picture that for a moment? It's 29 AD. In the spring in April, John turns 30, and he begins baptizing people down at the Jordan. Six months later, his second cousin, Yehoshua, from up in Nazareth, starts his ministry on his 30th birthday in the fall in September by going into the little synagogue in Nazareth. He opens up Isaiah, and he reads from the scroll about the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. You can read that, how he goes in that. And as he closes the book, he says, what? This day, this scripture has been fulfilled in your presence. How do you think that went over with the hometown? Okay, they're ready to stone him. He leaves Nazareth, comes down to the Jordan, and when his second cousin John sees him walking toward him, they're both now 30 years old. John turned 30 in April. He's turned 30 here in September. He points to him and says what? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He understood that he was the forerunner of the Messiah, the last Old Testament prophet. The amazing gospel accounts. Matthew has a Jewish gospel with a royal Jewish ancestry of Jesus, going from Abraham to David to Solomon through the king, to Jacob and his son Joseph. That's the legal Jewish father of Jesus, the adopted father. Luke's Gentile gospel, he's a doctor, he's a physician. He has a physical bloodline from Jesus coming from Adam to Abraham to David to Nathan to Mary's father, Heli. Jesus physically born to Mary. Wasn't physically born from Joseph. That's just the kingly line. Physically born from Mary in that line. If you follow along in the slides, you can coordinate these dates. And it's pretty amazing because we have the Roman historian Tertullian, the Roman historian Irenaeus, and Eusebius all pinpointing when Jesus was born. It was 28 years after the death of Cleopatra, which is well known to be in 30 BC. What's 30 minus 28? Come on, you can do this. Two, that's 2 BC. It was during Augustus's beginning his reign, 41 years after the birth of Jesus. Well, 
in 43 minus 41 is 2 BC. Augustus died 15 years after Jesus' birth when Tiberius began his reign in 14 AD. 14 minus that 15 takes you back to 2 BC again. Sad to say, the ancient calendar was put together in the middle of the fourth century, the same one we have today, pretty much, and it was based on a presumption that Jesus was 30 years old when he died. That's why you can have Jesus born two years before he was born, right, 2 BC. It's because our calendar has been updated to accommodate that. Here's an even closer look for you. As we hone in on 3 BC into that 1 BC area, 28 years, the 28th year from Cleopatra's death, as we're told by Eusebius and Tertullian, puts you in the fall of either 3 BC to the fall of 2 BC. And the 42nd year of Augustus's reign is the fall of 2 BC to the fall of 1 BC. The only overlap between those two accounts is the fall of 2 BC. We've got nine different points that all say the fall of 2 BC. If Zacharias was in the temple in 3 BC, Six months later, Mary uh, comes to, you know, visit her, her cousin. John is then born in the spring, the following year. Jesus is born 40 weeks later. Interestingly enough, if you actually count out those 40 weeks, you come to September 29th of 2 BC. Just so happens that year on the calendar, that was the beginning of Tishri 1, the first of Tishri, the new year on the Jewish calendar, the Feast of Blowing Trumpets, Yom Teruah. Right after sunset, that would be the, what would happen all throughout Judea. So on that first Christmas, when they come into Jerusalem, you have to get the hallmark count out of your mind, okay? Jesus was not brought down by Joseph and Mary, okay, to Bethlehem two days before her pregnancy was coming to an end, okay? How many pregnant gals here would like to go on a ride on a donkey for about 160 miles on your last month of your last trimester, okay? Most likely, they probably went down with a caravan of people, when she was maybe just two or three months pregnant, to stay there with family in that city, the city of David, which is where they were from. And they would have come down with a large group over that overland travel. She wouldn't have maybe been more than two or three months pregnant. And the city is swelling with population who are there for the census. And in those days, homes in the first floor is where the animals went in, and you went upstairs, and that's where the living quarters were, and that's where you would sleep with the nice breezes and so forth. So when they are told that there is no room for them upstairs in any of the good places to sleep, they're told you can have one of the downstairs areas where the, where the animals are usually kept. Where are the animals, though, in the late fall? They're out in the fields with the shepherds, so the place is empty. And we've been told that a manger is this little feeding trough, which is more of a 1880s Old West feeding trough. But a true histor historically accurate manger in first century Judea is a indentation in the first floor where the straw would be put. It's about 18 inches deep, and the straw would go down in there, packed in, and that's the manger where he was laid on the first floor of a house because there was no room for them up in the top. I know we think of uh, no room for them in the end. It's like they came in with their Expedia printout and was showing it to the front desk, and they were saying, yeah, we don't have any record of your reservation or something like that, but uh, it, you know, we have to get over some of these uh, colloquialisms that have, have happened over the years. In fact, do you realize... Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. That means they went from Bethlehem down to Jerusalem. And he was, he, was, he was circumcised on the eighth day, keeping with the law, which he came to fulfill. Mary, as a Jewish woman, having just given birth to a baby, we have four kids. They're 31 to 37 now, but uh, 
I was there at the birth of all four of them, and we know there's a lot of blood at a birth. Well, a woman who's Jewish who has all that blood, she would go through 40 days of purification rites as per Leviticus chapter 12 and Leviticus chapter 13 before she could ever step foot in the temple again. That first Christmas was really about this beautiful scene out in the, out in the fields where the hosts of heaven announced the birth to who? To the shepherds, just to the lonely shepherds. They end up coming into the city to see this sign. And interestingly enough, it's the in-floor manger where the straw is, where she laid little baby Jesus. The first Christmas, there's a lot of awe and buzz going on because right afterwards is the Magi arrive, probably about four to five, six months after. And as they arrive, Herod asks them very specifically, when was the exact time you saw this star? And he's trying to ascertain given nine months for the pregnancy, how their travels were, how old could this baby possibly be? To cover, his, to cover all his bases, what does he do? He orders every child two years old and under in Bethlehem to be slaughtered. He wants to make sure that even if he's off by several months, we, we get every child two years old and under. We're told then that the family was warned, Joseph was warned in a dream, to go to Egypt now, again, we picture them what? Same donkey. He walks alongside with his staff. He has a little box of trail mix over a little sash over here, and Mary's up on the, on the donkey. You know, that's how we see it in all the Hallmark cards and all the other things. Most likely, they went over to Joppa, caught a, caught a ship, and sailed down along the coast to the Nile Delta, where there are about seven or eight cities right on the coast just east of Alexandria. They would have stayed there for several months until Herod dies. Sometime after the Eclipse of 1 BC in January and prior to Passover, as Josephus tells us. And then we're told they make the return trip back after they're told that Herod is dead, probably came back by ship up to Joppa and then straight across over to Nazareth, where Jesus would stay with his family. All the clues from the scripture, the precision of the prophecy is amazing. And if you take a look at it and see it in detail, I've tried to do, I hope, a good job of explaining it all in this book that is really designed not as a, a theological book or something like that. It's really, for the average reader, a great Christmas story. Now, after Christmas, they go up to the temple, and Simeon, who's been there, an old guy, says, Lord, I'm now released, for I have seen your salvation, the light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory to Israel. He grabs Mary by the shoulders. Can you imagine her? Jesus is around uh, 45 days old. He's been circumcised. She's now been purified to come up to the temple from her having given birth. He grabs Mary, he looks her right in the eye, and he says this, your son has been appointed for a fall and rise of many, a sign to be opposed, like a sword that will pierce your soul. Truthful prophecy? She, she 29 years later, 30 years later, is going to be standing on Golgotha, looking right up at her son, hanging on a Roman cross. Amazing. After Christmas, there was also a woman named Anna, who was a prophetess there in the temple. And she's going around telling everybody, thanks to God. And she continued speaking of Yahweh to all who were looking for the redemption of Israel, saying that Messiah had in fact come. Interestingly enough, the religious leaders were actually a little bent out of shape several years later. Because what happened is we're told that in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob is prophesying, Israel is prophesying over his sons, and he brings in Judah. And he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah until the lawgiver between his feet, 
until Shiloh comes, which all the Jewish rabbis recognize as a euphemism for Messiah. The scepter was their tribal national sovereignty as a nation, the nation of Israel, but they had now been conquered by Rome. They were nothing more than a little province, a little area within the Syrian province, which was ruled by Quirinius. Mashiach had to come before that national scepter was taken away from them. Josephus records that in 6 AD, Rome replaced Herod Archelaus, who was the last Jewish king over the area. He was replaced with a Roman prefect named Caponius. Augustus Caesar reduced Judah to the Roman province of Syria, no longer a sovereign nation, removed all their state powers from the Sanhedrin. In fact, that's why they couldn't put Jesus to death. They couldn't do a capital crime. They couldn't execute him. And how would Jews would have done execution? Stoning, right? And they didn't have the right to do so anymore. They had lost that to the Romans. That's why they went to Pontius Pilate and tried to say, you have to put him on the cross. But indeed, here's the thing. What was the Jewish reaction in 6 AD when they lost their sovereignty? Josephus writes that all the religious leaders were out in the street, tearing at their robes, throwing dirt in the air on themselves, and weeping because they said, could Yahweh have lied? The scepter has departed and Messiah hasn't come. But in 6 AD, there was a little seven-year-old boy up in Nazareth living with his mother and his father and his other brothers and sisters. Jesus had already come. Isn't that cool? Now we'll close with this. What also makes the Feast of Yom Teruah so interesting is that the feasts, there are seven feasts, three in the spring, then a little break from Passover, Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of First Fruits, up to Pentecost, which is then 50 50 days after, Penta, 50 days after Passover. There's a little three-month break, and then you come to the fall feast. Yom Teruah on the first of Tishri, the Feast of Blowing Trumpets. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, 10 days later. And then four days after that, Sukkoth, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And these are all prophetic in that the first feasts, Passover, Unleavened Bread, Feast of First Fruits, and Pentecost, all have been fulfilled. Jesus has died on the cross. The church has been launched at Pentecost. We're now in this break, what we call the Age of Grace or the Church Age. And then come these three other feasts that are prophetic of future events. Many see the Yom Teruah as prophetic potentially for the rapture of the church because it is the blowing of trumpets. And what are we told that happens at the, at the rapture, at the last trumpet? The Lord himself will descend and he's going to come and, and catch up his church. So remember those prophecies again. Seed of the woman, a virgin will conceive, Emmanuel. If you were out there with the shepherds on that evening and you think about what was going on, um, picture for a moment a balmy evening, fields with all these flocks just eating, maybe a little campfire sitting around. And right after sunset, you all look at each other and you say what? Phil, happy new year. Happy new year. It's the new year. It's the first of Tishri. Right after sunset, it begins. And all throughout Judea, in Jerusalem, in, uh, in uh, Samaria, all up into the Galilee region, up through Bethlehem, what would have happened is they would come out with the ram shofar, just as I have here on the cover. And uh, this is a friend of mine. Picture for a moment, if you can. Just, uh, I don't want to get too goofy here, but maybe close your eyes. Picture a beautiful, balmy evening. You see the little town of Bethlehem swelled with all the people who were there for the census. And this is what you would have heard.
Picture that. All over, people would be out on rooftops blowing their shofars. It's the new year. It's the feast of Tishri, uh, the first of Tishri, the feast of Yom Teruah. And in this little house somewhere on a manger floor in the, in the floor there in some straw, with some shepherds coming out to see that birth, it's the Savior coming on this prophetic time of the Feast of Blowing Trumpets. Next Christmas, uh, Christmas is next Saturday. And many say, well, gee, David, as Christians, is it okay then to celebrate Christmas on December 25th? My gosh, you know. And uh, of course it is. My pastor, Ricky Ryan, for 20 years, used to always say, we get two big days a year where the world is pretty open to things about Jesus. Christmas and Easter. So we're going to take Easter and we're going to take Christmas and say this is a wonderful opportunity to share the good news about the coming of the Lord. Now, even next Saturday, you know Saturday is named after Saturn from the uh, Roman Empire there and so forth. So I hope you don't say, well, I don't, so, I don't, I don't recognize Saturday because it's named after Saturnalia, right? I don't recognize Tuesday, which is Mars or Mardi, right, in the French and so forth because it's named after the Roman god of war, Mars and so forth, right? No, we, we are going to embrace Christmas on the 25th, but use it as this. I'm going to say four things to charge you with. Be encouraged about the truth of God's amazing word. Be a witness, because people are going to be more open to hear during this time. Be the Lord's eyes, ears, heart, and mind, having compassion for the lost who don't know the Lord. Don't beat anybody up during this time. Extend the love of the Lord to them. That's why it's so great. I had this typed in my notes here, and we, we sang it. Casey sang it this morning. Just say those words with you. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature will sing. Joy to the world. The Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while the fields, the floods, the rocks, the hills proclaim. Repeat the sounding joy. Because he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness, and the wonders of his love. Let me close with this short little reading from page uh, 123. In Tishri of 2 BC, and at sunset at the start of the new year, all throughout Judea, trumpets would have been blowing in these three sets of ten long blasts, followed by a rousing crescendo of ten sustained long blasts to a significant victory. Imagine that balmy September evening with sustained echoes of trumpets, resounding from Jerusalem, all the towns and villages, including little tiny Bethlehem. Picture some priests finishing up their duties at the temple, completing other sacrifices at the altar, or washing the bronze basin in front of the holy place. Maybe others were handling their duties inside the holy place, near the seven gold lampstands, the table of showbread, or the altar of incense in front of the veil. As the shofars began to blow near the temple and throughout the city of Jerusalem, those priests, those trumpet sounds, would reverberate all across the skies. The priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the temple guards, the general populace would pause for a moment at sunset, look up into the early evening sky, and ponder Yahweh's promised Messiah. Perhaps they wondered if this new year might finally be the long-awaited anointed one would be revealed. The same happy new year, blowing off the shofar, also happened up north in Caesarea Philippi, over in Caesarea Maritima, on the northwest coast, all across Galilee region, Trumpets and resounding in Nazareth, Tiberias, Capernaum, Cana, Bethsaida, Gennesaret. The shofars fill the sunset by the Dead Sea in Bethany and Masada, and the Essene community in Qumran, the city of Jericho in Hebron and Emmaus, 
The fields around Bethlehem Ephratah had trumpets echo throughout the Judean Samaria night. Imagine what Mary and Joseph might have felt like hearing that sound as their son was born that evening. I get chills. Thank you for listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com.